You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 12, 22 through 34. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him. He healed him so that the man could both speak and see. All the crowds were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruits. Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, peace be with you. My name is Timothy Jones and I have the privilege and joy of serving as one of your pastors here at Sojourn Midtown. And here's what I want us to get today as a key point. And it's that the words we speak reveal what we love. The words that we speak reveal what we love. And the words that we speak that do reveal what we love, they can bring us together or they can pull us Apart. I've experienced that over the past several years in, in some different ways to do with college sports. Now, some of you are very passionate about college sports, and that is great. I have nothing against that. I am just not a person who is into college sports at all, and that's caused a couple of awkward exchanges over the years. I remember we were driving through Alabama, and as we were driving through Alabama, I was wearing an orange and blue plaid shirt. And I was at a gas station, and somebody just out of the blue said, Yauburn? And I said, excuse me, I had no clue what he's talking about. And he said, Yauburn? I said, excuse me. And he said, your shirt, Yauburn? And I looked down, and I said, it's not Auburn, it's orange and blue. And the guy throws down his potato chips and walks off at that point because he's just upset with me because apparently there's a team that's orange and blue that's sovereign. I didn't know about this. The worst one was right after we moved here just about 12 or so years ago, and I went to a coffee shop. Again, I was wearing on a particular day that I wasn't aware of something going on, a blue shirt. 
And somebody said to me, are you a UK fan? And I said, I think England is a great place. But he, I didn't know. And then I realized later, somebody informed me, he wasn't talking about the United Kingdom. And these people loved college sports. What they said flowed out of what they loved. But because we loved different things, it set a barrier between us. Now that happens in a very different and much deeper way with Jesus and the Pharisees because the kingdom they each loved was a different kingdom and that set a barrier or a division between Jesus and the Pharisees because you see, the words we speak reveal the kingdom that we love. This text is not primarily about an unforgivable sin. That's in the text. But that's not the main thing about this particular text. The main point of this text is how we use our words. That's the point of the text. And here's what I want us to call us at Sojourn Midtown to embrace is what I would call a God-centered grit in the way we speak. A God-centered grit in the way that we speak. One of our parts of our statement is that we want to fill this city with gritty disciple makers. And part of grittiness is authenticity in the ways that we speak. When it comes to using our words, a true God-centered authenticity. Here's the problem, though. Our world gives us only two different ways to use our words. Let's take a look at them up on the screen. Two different ways that we can use our words. One of them is to live with a lack of authenticity. Not to ever deal with anything difficult, not to ever say any difficult words that need to be spoken, nothing like that. Simply to keep everything to ourselves. But in our world today, I don't think we're much in danger of that one. We are far more in danger of and captive to the other one, which is a self-centered authenticity, where we express every thought and every feeling that we have, and difficult truths are spoken in ways that press others down and lift ourselves up. It's the whole way a vast swath of social media works is by this. That's the one we're in danger of, but here's the beautiful thing. God, in his word and through his gospel, gives us an alternative to what the world says. And here's the alternative that God gives us. God gives us the alternative of a God-centered authenticity where we are able to speak difficult truths in ways that point people to the goodness of God and our thoughts and our feelings are expressed with patience and in submission to God's truth. But here's what I want us to see. We can't do that if we are trying to build our own kingdom and love our own kingdom. The only way we can do that is to have the security of knowing that in Christ, I am part of the only kingdom that ultimately matters and will ultimately last, and I don't have anything to prove. I am secure in the kingdom that God has given That's the only way that we can live in this way of God-centered grit, authenticity that is God-centered. And understand this is important. Do you realize you spend 30% on average, 
You spend 30% of your waking hours talking. There are a few of you, it's a lot higher, but on average, okay? 30% of your waking hours are spent talking. Another 9% is spent either on social media, writing something, or text messaging, or writing in some other way. We spend right at 40% of our waking hours producing words. We do on average. And you know as well as I do that those words are powerful because there are things that people have said to you in your past that just still hurt. There are epithets of words that people have called you in your past and they said something to you that tore you down and you still feel it right now when I mention it. You still feel it. There are also words of encouragement and affirmation that you've gotten in your life that set you up for what you're doing now. You still feel those words too. Your words are powerful. And what if our words were filled with God-centered grit, authenticity that aims people toward God? Now, as we look in this particular text, the first thing we see is a bruised reed whose light is about to go out. We see a man who fits the exact the profile of that person who is a bruised reed or who is a smoldering wick. He is someone that in the eyes of his culture would have no value at all. It says, then came a man who was mute and blind and demonized. Probably he could not speak or hear at all. And think about this man. There were no words of love that he could hear from people who loved him. No words of love he could express. He could not see the smile on the faces of people who cared about him. And somewhere in that deep darkness, he had given himself over to the powers of darkness. Such that he is mute and blind and demonized. And do you remember that word that Jesus spoke? He quoted Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 3, just a few verses earlier. It, it had that in Matthew. And here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 3, that Jesus, the Messiah, a bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not quench, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Jesus cares about those that are marginalized and pressed to the side. And he cares about bringing justice and equity for them. And this is one of those people. His culture had pushed him to the side and Jesus heals this particular man. And there are two responses to this healing. The first response to this healing is that the people recognize the possibility of a new kingdom. It says in verse 23, this isn't David's son, is it? Is this the, day, the son of David? Could this be the son of David? They're not certain, but they're open. And when they use the phrase, the son of David, that is kingdom language. That is language of a kingdom because David had been the great king of Israel and they were looking for somebody who would come and who would claim that same type of kingship all over again. When they say, is this David's son? Maybe they were saying this man could be the one who brings us a new kingdom. But the Pharisees, the Pharisees did not see the possibility of a new kingdom. What the Pharisees saw was a threat to their own kingdom. Now let's remember what we've seen of the Pharisees just over the past couple of chapters. The Pharisees are following Jesus, but for all the wrong reasons. They are following him just 
to find things wrong. It's kind of weird and creepy when you think about it. Because he's walking through the grain field within his disciples. And they're rubbing heads of grain and eating some of those. And suddenly out from behind the grain stalks pop the Pharisees. Like, they just look up. Ah, you can't do that. He's in, a, he's in a, a synagogue, and when he's in the synagogue and he does something, suddenly the Pharisees pop up in the back row and say, you can't do that. It's as if the Pharisees are the squad that just, showed, just goes about throwing shade on the Jesus parade everywhere they go. That's all they're doing. They're just showing up everywhere just to be able to criticize Jesus. But why? Why? Well, see, the Pharisees were expecting a Messiah. They were longing for a Messiah who would restore their nation to what it once was. They said, there's a glory that our nation had in the past, and we want somebody who will restore our nation to what it once was. And Jesus, your resume doesn't fit that. Jesus, your resume isn't somebody who's going to restore our nation to what it once was. So let's think about who the Pharisees were. The Pharisees, what they were doing here, they were on the right. They were the conservatives of their culture, theologically and religiously. And they're looking for a military savior. They're not the Sadducees, who are over on the left and more accommodating to their culture. But rather, they're on the right. They're the religious conservatives of their own day. And notice something, just as a sidelight. By the end, they both hate Jesus. <laughs> So if you get hated by people on the right and on the left, it's okay, you're in good company. By the end, they both join together to destroy Jesus by the end, okay? And so that's what we have in these two groups. And so the Pharisees are bringing this critique from the religious right of Jesus, and he is not a threat to the truth. Let's get that clear. Jesus is the truth. He's not a threat to the truth. What he is a threat to is their tradition is their traditions. Whenever you get upset in church, it's worth asking yourself that question. Am I upset over the truth or am I upset over my tradition? Because most of the time when somebody's upset, it's not because they're upset over the truth. It's because they're upset like the Pharisees over their tradition about the music style or the preaching style or how people dress or the type of persons that you want to be in charge. That's what the real issue is, is not the truth, but is your traditions. But what the Pharisees spoke revealed the kingdom that they loved. They loved their traditions more than they loved Jesus's victory over evil. Now, just think about it for a moment. They have just seen a man healed of physical issues as well as spiritual issues by Jesus, and yet there is no joy or rejoicing in them. Instead, what they have to say is, he casts out demons by the power of Beelzebul, or Baalzebul, the Lord of the heights is what that means, the Lord of the heights. And Beelzebul had been one of the gods of the nations in Canaan before the Israelites ever showed up. 
And by this time, what had happened is the word Beelzebul had become sort of a euphemism or a substitute word for Satan. Think of it this way, okay? It's like saying he who must not be named instead of saying Voldemort, okay? That's what it's like if you get that. So basically, they're saying Beelzebul, they're referring to Satan at this point, and they're saying, Jesus, you throw out demons by the power of the prince of the demons. Now, what seems to upset the Pharisees most throughout Matthew's gospel is not so much that Jesus throws out demons. It's how he does it. If you were to look in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16, you see something very important there. It says that Jesus cast out demons with a word. With a word. With a word. Think about this for a moment. The Pharisees had all sorts of elaborate procedures for casting out a demon. It went on for hours for them to cast out a demon. They had all these things they had to go through. And then this man comes along and he casts out demons. What? With a word. He can speak the word. And the demons know his authority. And they flee. And the Pharisees cannot stand this. And the words they spoke revealed the kingdom that they loved. And Jesus, I love his reply. He says, that didn't even make sense. That does not even make sense. How would I be throwing out, how would Satan allow this for me to throw out demons by the power of demons? How would this even work, is what Jesus is saying. If that's happening, Satan's kingdom has a civil war and it's collapsing on itself. Basically, what Jesus is saying, if I could paraphrase it, is Satan may be strong, Satan may be sinful, but he ain't stupid. He's not letting his kingdom collapse from the inside like this. And it says here that Jesus is doing this by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit. That same Spirit that was at work in the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary, that same spirit that, that, that said, but it fell on Jesus at his baptism when his father said, this is my son in whom I delight, that same spirit who empowered him through the desert and through his wilderness temptations, that same spirit is with him to throw out demons. And here's the thing, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that same spirit is at work in you. And it's by that that Jesus, with a word, can throw out a demon. And it says in verse 29, if Satan, it says in verse 29, that how can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Do you see what Jesus is saying there? He says, Satan is a strong man, but I'm a stronger man. Satan is a strong man here, and I am here, and I'm getting ready to tie up Satan and steal all his stuff. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, this is a parable, folks. Don't do this in your neighborhood, okay? That's not called following Jesus if you tie up your neighbor and steal their stuff. It's called a felony. Don't do it, okay? But Jesus is using this as a parable and says, I am visiting Satan's house, and I am tying him up, and I am stealing all the stuff he thought was his. I am taking it Back is what Jesus is saying right here. Satan may be strong, but Jesus is stronger. And he, through his kingdom, has shattered Satan's power. Here's a way to think of it. 
Satan may be a dog still with a vicious bite, but he is a wounded beast and he is on God's leash. Always remember that. He is a wounded beast and he is on God's leash. And as you think about this and hear these things, I want us to recognize something. At any given moment around us, if God were to pull back the curtain, you would see dazzling things beyond your wildest imagination. Right here, in this place, there are myriads of angels giving praise to God. There are powers that we can't even imagine that are at work all around us. But all those powers of darkness are on God's leash. Never forget that. He has power over those powers. And I don't want us to become people that get fascinated or speculating about all these powers. C.S. Lewis at one point put it this way. He said that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Here's all you need to know. You need to know that that spiritual world is real and Satan is defeated. That's what we need to know about that world. Now, after this comes this difficult text about an unpardonable sin. And as we look at this unpardonable sin, what we see is that there are words that can come from a hardened heart that can keep someone from seeing the kingdom of God. There are words from a hardened heart that can keep someone from seeing the kingdom of God. Remember, the focus of this text is the power and potential danger of our words. And so sometimes when we look at this part about the unpardonable sin, we miss the central point, but we also miss a glorious gospel promise. I want you, before we even look at an unpardonable sin, to look at what it says in the first half of verse 31. It says there from the words of Jesus, Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy. Pause. People will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy. People will be forgiven every sin. Sin and blasphemy. Do you know what he's saying? Other than this one sin I'm going to articulate, there is no sin that is unforgivable. Wow. Think about that for a moment. The sexual sins you've been struggling with, they can be forgiven when you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. The words you wish you had never said that set off a series of reactions that have changed people's lives, that can be forgiven. You turn and trust. That one night you wish you could never forget, that one incident nobody in here knows. And you're pretty sure if they knew that they would not welcome you here. All of that can be forgiven. There is no sin, no blasphemy, other than the single one that cannot be forgiven when we turn from our sin and trust Jesus. So great is the redemption of Jesus. 
Jesus died as a substitute, bearing the punishment for your sins, for the sins of anyone who will trust in him. But it's also a beautiful scandal because what is true for you is true for the person who has wronged you. The person who has wronged you, they also can be forgiven. Isn't it fascinating how sometimes we want grace that operates on a one-way street coming to me, but we don't want grace to go the other way. It goes both ways. Now, that doesn't mean there are not real and necessary consequences of sin for you and for the people who have wronged you. That doesn't mean there aren't. There are real and necessary consequences for certain sins. What it does mean is that in eternity, God does not see those for those that repent and trust him. And it means that in God's eyes, before his court of law, we might say, the people can be forgiven of whatever sin they have committed, save what is described in this text. So what is it that is unforgivable? It is, it says in the last half of verse 31, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's unpardonable sin. And here's what it is in simple terms. It is someone decisively declaring that the kingdom revealing works of God's Spirit come from an evil source. Someone decisively declaring that the kingdom revealing works of God come from an evil source. And here's why. If somebody declares that the kingdom revealing works of God, they come from an evil source, what is there left to convince them of what they ought to believe? There's nothing left for them because they've rejected the works of God as something that is evil in its origin and not as something that is good. We get a little hint of this, pretty close to this, in the resurrection of Jesus later in Matthew, in which what happens when the body is resurrected, that those who did not believe said, this has happened, the, the empty tomb, because of an evil reason, the body's been stolen. What are they doing? Attributing the wondrous work of God to an evil source and thus completely rejecting this. And when we hear this, why on earth was this included? This is pretty obscure. <laughs> why is it included? Well, it's partly because this was a real accusation that Christians at this time were actually hearing. We have a, a, a sort of a tractate from, a religious, uh, from religious leaders, and here's what it has to say about Jesus. Let's take a look. It said, Jesus the Nazarene, this was an accusation at Christians, practiced sorcery and led Israel astray. It was not uncommon in their world for people to be saying, Jesus did miracles, but he did them through sorcery. He did them through evil means. He did them through demonic means. As a sidelight, it's interesting that the closest critics of Christianity didn't say Jesus did no miracles. They admitted he did miracles. They couldn't deny he had done miracles. What they had to say instead was that he must have done it from an evil source. He must have got it from an evil source. But here's the wondrous truth. If you're worried and concerned that you've committed the unpardonable sin, you probably haven't because your heart is still open to God working. And this is a rejection of God's working and the goodness of it. But it is this for all of us. This is a warning that reminds us 
of the power of our words and our declarations. The words of the Pharisees, they revealed the kingdom that the Pharisees loved, and it was their own. Now, Jesus actually applies the text for us, beginning at verse 33. Here's what Jesus said. Hear these words as he brings all of these things about our words together. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless, or we might even say workless, word that they speak. A word that doesn't work anything good, a workless word. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. There are three simple truths I want you to get from this about our lives. Here's the first one. Learn to be honest about what's in your heart. Learn to be honest about what is in your heart. It says here that the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart. The words we speak outwardly reveal the kingdom we love inwardly. Have you ever had that moment where you said, where did that come from? I can't believe I just said that. Where did that come from, that statement that was that angry or that cruel or that bitter or that racist? Where did that come from? What, what happened? Do you know where it came from? It was somewhere there in your heart. That's why it came out. It was there in your heart. It's because of what was inside you. That's where it comes from. We need to learn to be honest about what's going on in our heart. Because do you know what breeds the bitterness that comes out of our mouths often? There are times when you rehearse over and over in your mind that person who wronged you and them getting what they deserve. You ever done that? Do you know what that does? It breeds a bitterness in our heart. It breeds a hatred and a bitterness in our heart. Or we're playing a scene over and over till you just feel the anger swelling within you. Or where you're just, you're marinating sometimes in just the bitterness of that person got that because they started in a different place in life than I did. All those things. Do you know what happens in those? You're training the desires of your heart. You're training them. And eventually that's going to come out. It's going to come out. And it probably isn't going to come out at the person that's wronged you. It comes out at your friends. It comes out at your spouse. It comes out at your kids. It comes out at your coworkers. It doesn't come out in the place where you're trying to aim it. It comes out in all these other places. And there are only two ways we can deal with that. Either just leave it there and it eventually comes out, or we can take it to the cross. Those are the only two options, brothers and sisters, for that bitterness and that pain that is inside us. And as I said, when it comes out, 
it's not typically going to come out of the person that brought the bitterness. It comes out of the people you love. It comes in that degrading comment that you make that you think is going to push your kids or your spouse or your friend to do better. You just kind of needle them. It comes out in that it comes out where nothing's just quite good enough for you. You're that person who if somebody's rejoicing and happy about something, you can find at least one thing wrong with it. You all know those people? If you don't know any of those people, you might be that people. But they always find something to critique or criticize. It's a better deal you could have gotten. Your kid gets an A minus and all you have to say is, why wasn't it an A plus? Where we criticize. It may be that in your heart where it goes is any disagreement is going to end up in yelling, just anger. And for some of us, it's not the words that we unleash on others. It's the words of hatred and loathing that we speak to ourselves. Jesus says, you will give an account for every workless word, for every word that doesn't work something good. You will give an account. Think back on your words this week. Just think. Think back on your words. When did you speak in ways that fell short of God-centered grit? And why? Why'd you do it? What was that cause deep inside you? What's the fear or the pain that's driving it? And you may say, I don't know. I don't know. And you may need some help. You may need to get get with a counselor who can help you work through why am I so angry or critical. It may be that you need to go to your kids and say, kids, mom and dad, we're, we're getting some help. We haven't done well. And we're going to get some help. But find a way to deal with it and take it to the cross. I want us to be a community of people who we know our own hurt. We know our own pain. And we're able to work through it and take it to the cross. That's why I love what Robert Chong, Pastor Chong, does with Restore. That's what happens in Restore. That's part of what's going on in Restore if you've done that or if you haven't is helping the pain be taken to the cross of Jesus. So be honest about what's in your heart. The second thing I'm going to say is something that should be common sense, but it's not really for any of us, including me. None of us needs to say everything we think. You realize that? None of us needs to say everything that we think. You see, our world's version of false authenticity is to declare, in essence, if I feel it or if I think it, I'm going to say it and put it on social media too. That's our world's authenticity. That is a false and self-centered authenticity. And you will give account for every careless word, including those in your Twitter arguments and your Facebook spats. You will give an account for that. I was going to be honest about something. This has been a few weeks ago, several weeks ago. When we first said gritty disciple makers, I didn't like that. I just didn't. I'll just be honest. But you know what? I didn't say a word about that. Not even my wife. I just said, I said you know what? I'm just going to pray through this. You know what I realized about five days into praying about it? 
I was 100% wrong and that was 100% right. It was. It is exactly what we need for where we're at. You know what I could have done? There's a lot of things I might have said, but I realized I don't need to say everything I think. If there's something going on you don't like, spend some time in prayer till you get a clear word from God. Now, in this, I'm not talking about us keeping silent about things like abuse or things of sin. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just the things we don't like. Because a lot of times, we just need to work through something in ourselves. But sometimes we speak things before we deal with things, and it hurts. It hurts. None of us needs to say everything that we think. And here's how we do that is to say, you know what, I'm secure in the kingdom of God. I don't need to build my own kingdom. I don't need to have everybody know my opinion. I am secure in what God has provided. And therefore, I can take my time. I can be patient. I can look for God's truth and be willing to say that I could be wrong. None of us needs to say everything that we think. And last of all, just bring it all together. Learn to live with God-centered grit. Because now I really like that term. I love it. I really do. I've got a shirt on order that has the definition on it. Okay? I love it. I love it. Because it's right. And God showed me something in it. Learn to speak that way. And what we see ultimately is Jesus as the ultimate example of that. Jesus never spoke anything but absolutely what was true. He was the truth. He never spoke anything that wasn't true. But Jesus spoke in ways that built people up, that challenged people. And when he came to the end, he's on the cross. And on the cross, he speaks words of grace. Father, forgive. Here is your mother. Please take care of her. Those are the things Jesus said when he was under the most pressure of all. That is gospel-centered grit of a God who entered into the messiness of our lives, who experienced that, who spoke with authenticity, and who recognized here these people who had utterly rejected his truth utterly rejected it, and yet he continues to speak the truth in that he speaks the truth anyway. He does it with kindness, with grace, but he speaks it. And the words that he spoke revealed the kingdom that he loved. And that kingdom is the kingdom of his Father that is present among us even now and was proven to be the kingdom that will have no end by on the third day, Jesus, bursting forth from an empty tomb. And I tell you what, if I had been bursting forth from an empty tomb, when I saw people first, I would have said, I told you so. But you know what Jesus said first, according to Matthew's gospel? Greetings. Do not be afraid. That's God-centered grit right there. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the day that you grant us, that we may celebrate your beauty, your wonder, your words, your truth. God, forgive us 
of the words we have spoken to ourselves and to others that have been so far from centered in you. Forgive us. Show us your truth, your way. Convict us that this community may be a community of people that speaks your truth, your words, and reveals a kingdom that is so much greater than any of us. In your name we pray. Amen. On the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. And he also took the cup after supper and said, this is my blood poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. And every week, we take this meal to remind us of that truth that our sins in Christ have been forgiven. Our sins have been forgiven. That when he hung from that cross, he took the punishment for the sins of every person who would ever believe in him and trust him and follow him. He took punishment in the place of those who would trust in him. And we're reminded by that in this reminder of his blood and of his body broken and poured out. The way we do this here at Sojourn is you tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice or the wine. The wine is marked by twine. There's gluten-free and alcohol-free communion elements to my left, to your right. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have trusted Christ, we invite you to eat this meal with us. If you're not, we ask that you hold back. Not because we want to push you back or in any way, but because we want you to receive Christ first so that you understand the meaning in this meal, that you may trust him, follow him, turn from your sins, so that you can experience the forgiveness that is only available in Christ. Come, take, eat, drink, and be reminded. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Soldier in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.